I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film historian and Toronto-based critic, lecturer, and instructor at U of T, Adam Naiman. Noir is perhaps one of the most rift genres of cinema out there. I was watching an animated series from last year with my small person the other day, and one of the characters went on a full, fedoraed, self-narrated adventure trying to solve a mystery. It's a genre that, weirdly, can be plugged into any format and work. 2005 saw two movies that riffed liberally on the format. Adam, as we're going to get into Brick and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang today, uh, do you want to just kind of give us an idea of what are the tropes we're looking for that people like to add to their stuff to make it noirian? Well, it's funny. You mentioned the fedora. And so there's a lot of outward tropes, which we might sort of say, like, you know, tropes as props, you know, and they're the sort of thing that you can, you can, you can, you know, put a, a kid's character in a trench coat and a hat and have kind of a rainy backdrop or shadows cast by venetian blinds and that's the kind of you know noir in a can stuff but i think you know more generally the 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 genre is kind of predicated more on a kind of moral universe that's cloaked in its own shadows so not just visual shadow but kind of you know moral shadows moral uncertainty a certain desperation driving characters whether it's economic desperation whether it's really fraught propulsive emotions like grief and and anger and vengeance and it always had a social context right whether you're looking at the novels of james m kane or, or or you know some of the film adaptations of his work even something like mildred pierce but definitely postman always rings twice you know these are depression or post-depression era tales I forget who it was who said it. Maybe Eddie Muller said that, uh, you know, in, in Greek myth, people fall from grace or from the sky, and in noir, they fall from the gutter. <laughs> so there's also the idea that you have a kind of street-level reality. And if you're ever elevated above that street-level reality, it's because you're taking a tour of the upper class or the gentry, and that's almost mm. always sinister. You know, <laughs> noir never starts in the mansion. And it rarely ends yeah. in the mansion, but maybe you go to the mansion to meet a really suspicious person. <laughs> and maybe the person in the, the mansion is the person pulling the strings. Like there's a lot in noir that's also about agency and characters who mm. feel like they don't have it or they can only really grasp it by means of violence or knowledge. And often what you find out sucks. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is mysteries are often resolved. And it's like, even if they are satisfactory <laughs> resolved, if it's a whodunit or who stole it, like, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> For everybody involved. I think about, um, it seems that people who 
love movies when they get the chance to make their own movie more often than not the one that they have been plotting is a noir of some variation so i think of like De palma loves a noir and setting it in california where it's all bright and beautiful um and then of course like Lawrence kasdan doing body heat which is a movie i saw for the first time and absolutely loved it's like oh hey you've written some of the most iconic movies of all time what do you want to do for your directorial debut this totally bonkers noir movie like it's really interesting well i mean you can argue that neo-noir which is hard to date to an exact movie. I mean, some people would say Point Blank by John Borman at mm. the end of the 60s. A lot of people would cite like The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, the early 70s. Those are movies that are already trying to recapture a past that for them is really only two or three decades earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and now neo-noir has like neo-neo-noir, you know? And so filmmakers like De Palma and Altman and the Coen mm. brothers who were essentially postmodern in the first place are now kind of like the royalty or ground zero for people who are doing neo 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 noir riffs in the 90s mm. you look at movies like the last seduction in the 90s or red rock west or or, or a number of those films and, and those movies are taking from the altman and cohen playbook you know who are themselves taking from older filmmakers so it's remained very very constant even as it keeps having these little gradations yeah. And, and updates yeah i i find that this this blip we're talking about is very interesting because you're like yeah there was never it never ebbed <laughs> it's just kind of different flows well, of noir throughout the decade there's always going to be sex violence mm. and edge but you also don't have yeah. blockbuster scale which is some way to kind of have an embedded mm. sense of seriousness or resistance or opposition to the mainstream. Like noir is quite mainstream, but it's not like the big, any of the biggest hits of all time are really or truly noirs. It's always seen right. as somewhat adult, which is to say it either cuts out the teenage audience or it really, really tempts the teenage audience towards something a bit forbidden. Or it adds in the teenage <laughs> audience deliberately, as in one yeah. of our films as in, today, as, right? as in one of our films yeah. today, yeah. <laughs> And the other thing I find fascinating yeah, is I, I also yeah. like to read noir. Like, noir is one of my favorite genres. And we're going to be talking about two movies today that are based on different noir writer influences. So we have Dashiell Hammett versus um, Raymond Chandler. And I much prefer Chandler to Hammett, and although some people, I'm sure, wouldn't agree with me. But when you look at them, they both do have very specific styles in terms of the language, which I think you see reflected in both of these movies today. It's really interesting that you can even narrow down just the tone of the voice, but the voice is still noir. Yeah, well, well that idea of voices is, is really crucial. I mean, often in noir, in order to bring the audience or the reader or the viewer closer, you'll actually quite literally use voiceover. And when you're adapting certain of these authors... You know, that voiceover is a way to collapse the distance maybe between an alienated character or an angry character or a confused character in the audience. It takes them inside their subjectivity. Noir is very interior, you know, and, and in a lot of good noir, you're sharing in the confusion or the anxiety or the outrage or the obsession of, of the character, you know, and that, that, that access to to inner life is is really crucial. All right, well, let's get into our first movie today because Ryan Johnson is someone who has seen a lot of movies and loves a lot of movies. His knowledge of cinema, along with his ability to emulate style and put a modern twist on it, I believe led to his eventual directing of The Last Jedi. And it's a skill he also put to work admirably in his tongue-in-cheek, violent, teen-angst take on the noir genre. 
brick. Interestingly, though, however, uh, although Ryan Johnson wrote both a novella and the script out in the style of Dashiell Hammett, he sees this more as a spaghetti western film, complete with a standoff with a muscle car. Now, I saw this movie when it first came out, and as someone who was just discovering movies and film history, it was an exciting revelation to me to see all these things put together in a new way. Now, watching it as an adult, who's now seen a lot of movies and read a bunch of film theory stuff, it feels like a really solid debut of someone who's done their homework and is ready to make their stamp on film history, which he's kind of done. Uh, Cam, what do you think? Sure, yeah. I mean, Ryan Johnson's an interesting person because I think we're talking about two very, like, writerly people mm-hmm. uh, that I not can't necessarily pin down as auteurs in their directing as easily. Um, but yeah, the, this is a, was a big debut, I remember as well. I, too, was in film school, uh, you know, I too uh, was excited by this film. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, big Sundance hit. He's obviously a guy uh, who has gone on to bigger things. Um, But yeah, it's uh, like you say, it's a very interesting twist on the genre. It's kind of a fantasy film where it's set in this world where people talk like film noir, even though it's modern day California high school. The story follows, as Adam was saying, a very alienated kid, a kid who seems used to be a popular kid in with all the cliques and now is kind of a weirdo outsider, but that is known for some level of investigative skill, <laughs> the principles and things He's like He's a him. narc. The uh, kid is a narc. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Sure. He's a 21 Jump Street of sorts. <laughs> uh, and he, uh, his ex-girlfriend, who now is uh, somewhat in, uh, involved in drugs, contacts him and kind of sets him on this investigation uh, eventually i don't think it's much of a spoiler it's kind of the poster uh, she is dead and he is kind of trying to figure out uh, what led to her death by shaking down the various cliques of high school and uh, local uh, teen drug kin- kingpins and things like that so it's a it's a fairly other than it being a bunch of teenagers it's a fairly standard plot and i guess it's modern day it's it's san clemente california it's a very sunny sort of noir in a way but um, yeah, and I think like Adam was saying, this this harkens back a little more to the neo-noirs. It's a little more of a, a 70s feel because it's just miserable and uh, a bit doofusy detective. He, he kind of gets in scrapes a lot more than some of the classy older guys. Right. Well, that idea, though, is so endemic to noir. You rarely have the superhero, you know. I mean, you know. You know, uh, uh, Philip Marlowe was always quite vulnerable, you know, emotionally vulnerable and, and physically vulnerable. You know, Mike Hammer was a two-fisted detective, but he, he took a fair, you know, sure. number of blows to they the head. They keep you know, waking he... up in different places and not knowing where they were, but there was a woman there a moment ago. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. You know, you, you, you want that because it's also what kind of brings you a little closer to the, the characters, that sense of weakness and, and, and vulnerability and being on the kind of low end of the totem pole. And that's what's interesting about Brick with the use of cliques, right? Yeah. That in a way the stakes are low because they're shrunk to the corners of a high school and a little bit to the adult world beyond, but the adult world is presented as being quite adolescent. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's never really a world of grown-ups. It's sort of no. a world of like grotesque adolescent <laughs> refugees. But that idea of high school popularity and high school, which is which is really also not just a riff on noir, but a kind of curdled riff on John Hughes, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like 20 years after the 80s teen movies, or even commensurate with a movie like Mean Girls, which is a different kind of cynicism mm-hmm. and a differently gendered cynicism. I mean, did those movies not come out in the same year? Yeah, or nearly. Yeah, I think, I think oh it's like, like 2004, 2003, 2004 for Mean yeah. Girls. 
So like just as these self-aware yeah. trips through the high school ecosystem in the company of someone who doesn't really belong to any one group, mm-hmm. but observes them all, which is sort of the great private eye conundrum, is that if you belong to any one group, you wouldn't be a private eye. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you have that in Pynchon's uh, Inherent Vice. That's the whole point of the Joaquin Phoenix characters. He's conversant with all and close with nobody. And that's sort of the same uh, with with Gordon Levitt's character in Brick, I think. Uh, he uh, Ryan Johnson's talked about how setting it in high school, he also hoped would mess people up with not knowing what's going to happen. Because you do have like your certain people, but like you don't have like someone appearing in a sha- shadowy alley. So you don't know, OK, maybe this is someone um, you can't necessarily make those connections right away. So there's still a bit of an air of mystery. Although, spoiler alert. If you know Noir at all, it's very clear the Laura, Laura character is a femme fatale, so of course she did it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The thing I like that he talks about as well is say, like using the Noir tropes and high school, like you say, like John Hughes. He, he hoped that Noir would lead you closer to the emotional reality of high school, where he said everything feels so high stakes. Like, it seems so stupid, obviously, as an adult watching a film, but uh, to to make these characters, everything be literally life and death is a little more like being in high school. Which is interesting, because I think of a movie like River's Edge, where, like, you are in this world of someone has been murdered, and, like, the kids are all kind of withholding that murder and that happened, um, and the, the adults are all completely absent. But in that world, the danger felt more real to me, of, like, you never knew when these kids mm. were going to snap, whereas this one is so taken out of reality that I don't have that same emotional connection. I feel myself a bit more of a distance. I mean, I, th- I think River's Edge is, is legitimately one of the great American movies of the it's late unbelievable. 80s. It's, 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 it's amazing. And, you know, I think that there was a film that was made a few years ago that, that was a bit of almost an homage to River's Edge called Super Dark Thing. Uh, yes, I yeah. actually watched that because Cam recommended it to yeah. me. It's wonderful. Not, not, not to be confused with, with Stranger Things, which is more of an homage <laughs> to Stand By Me, right? Yeah, but I mean, sorry. even River's Edge is like the better Stand By Me. It's like mm. teenagers in a body in the woods, but it's not a moral lesson. And it's yeah. not coded in nostalgia. It's very upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and when you watch something like River's Edge, you you feel like the characters that you're repressing this horrible knowledge. Like you know that something bad has happened. When are they going to say something? If they don't say something, I mean, how do you walk around with that? Brick never accesses no. that mm. because it's got such a a, a facade put up in front of it in the form of the stylization of the dialogue, which is why it got noticed. Mm. And as an exercise to be like, I'm going to do Bugsy Malone, but with <laughs> teenagers, <laughs> one of Alicia Fletcher's favorite films. <laughs> yeah, one of Fletcher's favorite films. I mean, that's the sort of thing that it reads great in a program note. Yeah. And it makes you take notice in a review. And then on screen, it obviously worked for a lot of people because the film was very acclaimed. But there's c- certain viewers, and I'm one of them in the case of Brick, where. Mm. I admire the cleverness of the conceit and I can even cop to the execution of the conceit, but I can't go beyond it. Yeah. It's fundamentally constrained by how kind of precious that is. Who's she been eating with? I don't know. That's, um, that's hard to keep track. Is it? Can be. It can be hard to keep track of those things because lunch, lunch is, um, lunch is a lot of things. Lunch is difficult. Uh, for me, it works in certain elements in like, um, I, I'm not usually big on winks, but for some reason I'm charmed by the winks here. Like the scene with her all sitting down to have breakfast with the Kingpin and the, and, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Um, and his mom is in, in this incredibly tense moment, like, do you guys want some orange juice? And I, for some reason, I think that scene is very funny. We have apple juice here if you'd like that. 
Or we've got milk, but you're having that on your cornflakes. Apple juice sounds terrific. It's country style. That's perfect. And I'll even give it to you in a little country glass. How about that? Or just even like the pin um, in the back of the, the limousine where for some reason there's a table lamp in there. I'm just like, what weird, wonderful set decoration. I know what you mean. And I think that there's, uh, Becky doesn't delve much into the horrors of film Twitter, but I think that the Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ryan Johnson sort of have the same uh, theater kid energy yeah. that I think keeps them from getting full acclaim where it's it's just hard to see past how much they enjoy what they're doing, kind of, and how much they're putting on a little show for you. Well, and there's well, there's something to be said for that pleasure. I mean, I'm very much in the minority where my favorite of Johnson's films is actually Brothers Bloom, which is wow. quite lame, but it has through through magicianship and illusionism and and that whole sense of artifice. It's a bit like Nolan's The Prestige. It kind of speaks to the kind of filmmaker he actually is. Mm-hmm. So that idea of showmanship and that idea of, show, of, of, of entertainment value is kind of what the movie is about. You know, I think in Brick, you have that theater kid energy being filtered through something that also means to be fatalistic and tragic and that actually doesn't pull its punches really narratively. Yeah. I mean, it's precious, but it's also quite harsh. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I think that's a hard balancing act to pull up. There was a Canadian film a couple of years ago that reminded me a bit of Brick. Did you, either of you guys see The Kid Detective? Yes. Yeah, I actually wrote it in my notes that I feel like that's the closest something has been to it. Yeah. And, and yet, even though it has a cute idea, which is like former kid detective now in the adult world, it doesn't have that same scrim of artificiality. Yeah, it doesn't have right. people talking in a form of, 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 of you know, pretense. And I, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty decent, The Kid Detective. And it also, there's something about the gut punches of the kid detective that linger with you a little more, you know? You exit that film actually thinking about things rather than kind of, yeah, yeah. It was, it's interesting. It's almost like, I I feel like Brick is maybe a tighter movie, but the kid detective is maybe a better movie in some ways. It's interesting to me too to see who can kind of handle the language because when someone pops up who can't handle the language in like a moment of high emotion. So I think of um, when Tug loses his shit for a moment and he starts yelling and because he's in a, a specific style, which is very modern, you can't understand a word he's saying, but it's like one of the few moments where I'm like, oh, you genuinely seem angry here and therefore you've let the pretense of the language go but now i have to go back and listen to you four times to figure out what you just said the eight blows are right clam so clam what have you got i can't beat out of you back in the basement well uh, th- this might seem like a bit of a, of a strange comparison and i don't think the movies are that similar nor do i think this is remotely the same kind of achievement but it is a bit like what kubrick asked to the audience in clockwork orange mm. which is that here is a vernacular that we are not going to annotate in real time and, you know, there's an audience that's going to go into Brick that was just paying to see it when it played in theaters because it's a widely released film. You know, Joseph Gordon-Levin's not a star. He hadn't worked with Nolan yet, but he had yeah. some profile. And they're listening to dialogue that is filled with shorthand and slang and words that don't quite mean what they mean. And no one pauses to explain it. Now, that's very teenage. And that's connected to a long history of slang, like teen yeah. 50s slang. And 70s slang and 80s slang and that hilarious stuff at the beginning of the 90s where they faked grunge slang. <laughs> the New York Times was like, called someone and said, how do grunge people talk? And she, she was a, a, a record executive and she gave them entirely fake terms. Wow. And they were like, this is how the kids are talking now. But so, I mean, I suppose on some level, there's a kind of conceptual integrity to the fact that kids talk to each other in a way that adults don't understand. And so Brick is somewhat challenging in that way where you, you're kind of like, what? 
are yeah. they talking about? I also think that there's a, it's worth noting, at least to me, I guess, trying to place this, that this also came right in the middle of the, the kind of David Milch auteur era, because it's right in the middle of the run of Deadwood, where I think writing that kind of un- impenetrable Shakespeare of your own making yeah. dialogue was considered the height uh, of kind of cool, cool, uh, hip writing. Yeah, yeah, Deadwood. Dead, Deadwood is a good comparison, uh, and also, you know, Deadwood is such a kind of genre pastiche of of, of, of western too. So I, that's a cool pairing. Well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt also talks about going to people who do like a, a slam poetry in a musicality sort of way uh, in terms of like rap. He listened to a lot of the Wu Tang Clan to try and figure out what the rhythms were. Uh, Tom Waits was another person because he obviously found that attachment to the rhythm of the words, which I think can also take you out of the emotion if you're if you get too caught up in it. It's like Shakespeare played without the highs and lows and just said directly. Mm. That's why an interesting way to contextualize all these things, whether they're complaints or just observations, because there's a, you know, there's a certain level in which the film is is a, is a fundamentally impressive object is it's also it's, it's a bit of a calling mm-hmm. card right yeah. and so i had a bit of a mean take on johnson in the past that he kind of was the knockoff nolan which didn't mm-hmm. mean that he's necessarily imitated but there's a pattern there like and brick is very much like memento mm-hmm. which is let's take neo-noir and then let's find some kind of twist on it that stands out apart from simply doing it and it wasn't quite the calling card Memento was, but he's had an almost Nolan scaled career as mm-hmm. he's moved from his brother's bloom, which is sort of his prestige, and then Looper, which is kind of his inception, to, to the size of something like a Star Wars movie. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting ascent for a genre filmmaker, and it's kept going up. He hasn't really had a big failure anywhere. Totally. It's a he's a, it's an interesting career, but yeah, it's kind of a guy that you're always like waiting for when does it all click, I guess, to me? I don't know. I, I enjoy him and I, I pay attention to him, but I, I kind of don't yet know what he's trying to do as an artist, I guess. Or you don't get uh, Knives Out without Brick. Like, it's very much a no, step sure. one to yeah. step two yeah. sort of thing, right? Especially yes. learning how to build a mystery. Yeah, and you could argue that Knives Out in places has that same stylized dialogue. It just might be that in that film, there's only one character who's in his own movie, and that's mm. the Daniel Craig character and everyone else occupies various levels of recognizable millennial reality (laughs) and 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 he's and he's kind of like a send-in or a stowaway from another era or from Mm. another geographical another geographical you know region or something yeah those two movies have a kind of relationship to them and if you view brick as a kind of calling card it's a calling card that paid off yeah well in terms of debuts of like someone announcing hey i'm a filmmaker i'm here and i'm gonna put a stamp on it would you say this is an effective one like if you watch this you can go okay i know what he's doing and how does it match up to other people's debuts well you don't need us to say it's an effective one i mean the proof is (laughs) but i mean but but for example at the time a lot of comparisons were also made to like blood simple Yeah. yeah and it's not like blood simple at all but you know Blood Simple had a more grown-up relationship maybe to Noir, and it's not separated by 50 years the way that Brick is. It was separated at that time only by 20 or 30. I mean, the Coens yeah. were not on the ground floor of Neo-Noir, but they, you know, like they could probably jump out the window and not break their legs <laughs> in terms of in terms of when they started practicing this. And they were actually seen in their own way as kind of like weirdly, you know, adolescent and precious and, and, and you know, having their own dialogue that didn't really yeah. sound like the way anybody talked. A lot of calling card debuts feel like they are noirs because Memento's the same thing. Sure, you know, as a sort of like here's a way to get attention. 
here's a gimmick. And you hear about how this came together. Uh, he's he's got his fingers in some parts of the industry. It seems like people liked him already. Cam, do you want to walk in a little bit about the the making of? Because this is also one of the first uh, instances of crowdfunding. Sure. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's, it's classic. It's like uh, Cohen Brothers style crowdfunding, I think, <laughs> where it's like uh, talk to all our rich parents and my uh, <laughs> agent's parents and what have you. Uh, and like shot it. He shot it at his own high school, which I think is, is a good idea. Uh, but yeah, I, I you get the impression it, it seems very scrappy. But then when you hear it's like, oh, well, you already had an agent. Oh, well, you know, uh, these people seem very connected. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Imagine the catharsis of filming at your old high school. That seems wild to me. <laughs> that's uh, that's the most. It's either cathartic or it's a uh, looming he within did you. Did say I don't he know. was the weird kid with the video camera who would have been a character in like sure. a '90s comedy. Yeah, I mean, I did like uh, Becky. You suggested watching the documentary by a student at the school, mm-hmm. which was actually quite yeah, good. Yeah, she was seventeen. And, she just uh, asked if she could yeah. make the documentary, and she did. She's now an editor, apparently. So, yeah. which is great. And she put it up for if you want to see it. It was only available on the um, the German uh, DVD release for some reason, yeah. but she's put it up on Vimeo mm-hmm. if you want to watch it. And it's it's really good for a seventeen year old who's just starting out. I, I I hadn't seen that. That's very charming. It it is, and mm-hmm. she does like it's. It is also interesting in terms of watching someone, again, emulating what they know something is supposed to look like is like, okay, I know I have to ask these questions and then these things get put together here. Like, yeah, it's someone who obviously has an eye and an ear for filmmaking. Yeah. And I think it's it's also interesting just to show how... Because I think you can always see these film objects as not, you know, oh, it's, it's it was scrappy. But to also give the opportunity to all these random people to act with, you know, who who go on to be big stars like Megan Good and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, yeah, it's very interesting to see those people in that context. Well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt at this point would have been a get as well. Like he was just coming yeah. off of Third Rock and there was like he had that sort of sense of promise around him where no one really knew how far he could go, but they knew he could go far. And this seems like because he's doing mysterious skin at the same time as this like he's really yeah. trying to break and mysterious out. skin came out the sundance before i yeah. believe so he would have been very hot at sundance too i think that would have opened a lot of doors there more than likely okay well let's move into our next film where uh we're not looking at someone who is at the beginning of an exciting career we're looking at someone who came back from an incredible career and then something went terribly wrong and then he's moving back into a new one a comeback of sorts it's kiss kiss bang bang That's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. (laughs) 
If you want a buddy movie full of action, Shane Black was usually the one to call. The writer of Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, and of course, The Monster Squad, Shane created and played with a number of tropes that now define how two or more characters interact while trying to solve some sort of crime. So it makes sense for his directorial debut that he would make a buddy movie, but also start riffing on noir so hard that he makes his characters self-aware that they're in a noir story. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang does have some elements that do not hold up, a warning for not-so-kosher LGBTQ plus content and child abuse content. But despite all of this, anyone I've mentioned to that we're going to be talking about this movie has had very, very nostalgic feelings towards it. They get this dreamy look on their face for like, that movie was great. But if the Iron Man and Sherlock series of movies have taught us anything, it is a delight to watch Robert Downey Jr. get beat up and bounce back over and over again in any context. Adam, do you want to walk us through the plot and the context of this one? I mean, maybe context more than plot because there's so much plot and so much of it (laughs) is surprising and it starts being surprising pretty early. I mean, the, the, the great conceptual joke off the top is that you have Robert Downey Jr. playing this kind of petty thief, almost, I would say, like sub-petty thief. You know, he, he's, he's stealing toys he's, in one of the first scenes he's, he's, you see him. He's stealing toys in the first scene. Yeah. And he stumbles into a, an audition that's very conveniently being held in the sort of like back alley, you know, <laughs> yes. room that, that you might stumble into when you're escaping the cops. And they mistake the anguish that he's showing in this ad hoc audition for real acting talent. So right off the top, you have this great image of Robert Downey Jr., who is one, a great actor, but two, a great actor who no one would cast for a while. Mm-hmm. Here inadvertently giving this brilliant audition, almost like a male version of Mulholland Drive, I mean, Watson Mulholland Drive. <laughs> and then they're like, well, go to Hollywood and, you know, maybe you want to break into the movies. And so when he's there, there's an aspect of reunion because he re-meets his childhood sweetheart played by the then unknown and unbelievably wonderful and attractive in this movie, Michelle Monaghan. He uh, meets this cop who's uh, uh, who goes by uh, Perry Van Schrijk, a.k.a. Gay Paris, who's there to give him on-the-job tutelage for his screen test where he's you know supposed to be playing a cop or an investigator. And so all these tropes of the movies and the fakeness of noir and the sorts of roles that you would audition for or, or play on screen start being interwoven with kind of real-life noir intrigue which is straight out of Raymond Chandler. It's so Raymond Chandler, that, yeah. You know, you have abusive, abusive, manipulative father figures. You have sinister casting couch practices. You have cars you have... going into giant bodies of water with bodies in them. <laughs> Car- cars going into giant water with, with bodies of water. You, you know, overheard conversations. And mm. through all of it, you have the slight self-aware remove of the Downey character, but which is offset by the fact that he finds himself getting emotionally invested in the people and the situation and the cycles of abuse that he's recognizing. You know, one of the great lines, which I assume is in the source novel, I've never read the source novel, which was originally mm-hmm. called uh, You'll Never Die in This Town Again, which is a great mm-hmm. title, and then got the, the slightly worse title of Bodies <laughs> Are Where You Find Them. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, at one, but at one point, Harry's at a Hollywood party and he's looking around at all the the, the women there, the aspiring actresses. And he's like, Hollywood is what happens if you turn the country on its side and shook it, you know, <laughs> and all the East Coast girls who couldn't retain a grip and fell, it fell, <laughs> you know. So he has a bit of the, the Chandler uh, Marlowe White Knight syndrome, right, where he's drawn mm. to women in, in trouble. And on the surface, Black mitigates 
how old-fashioned and sexist that is by making the Monaghan character acid-tongued and capable and funny. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, ultimately, it is about vulnerability and vulnerability that's rooted in childhood abuse, really, and in, 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 in childhood mistreatment. And watching Downey's sarcasm and detachment melt away as he really starts trying to do the right thing is where the movie locates a weird sense of emotion for me. Cause all the emotion in a way like brick, it's just as artificial, mm. but it seems to me to be a more affecting movie. I don't know if you feel the same way. Cam. I'm yeah, I, I'm on the fence. I don't know. I, I, I it's, it's some of the, some of the cuteness and some of the, I agree the Michelle Monaghan character is like really what what saves a lot of this movie, but some of the ways it dehumanizes the other women, I find it is a bit distancing. And I mean, I, it's it's part of the plot that it's like this machine that dehumanizes yeah. women. Uh, it's it's not not without commentary. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. Of the two of them, actually, I don't know how I feel on either. I feel like this was a real return to two movies that I loved so much when they came out, and that I'm kind of like, uh, they both hit me a little tin-eared these days but i don't know there is something and and again i actually like i think connecting it to the redemption arc of robert downey jr who is somebody who has such a hard one return to hollywood is kind of interesting just knowing that back stuff so i do feel endeared to that well i was doing an, i was doing an event in in new york back in november for my, my david fincher book i was talking about zodiac and the audience didn't like something i said in the book where i sort of said you know here's a look at robert downey jr right before he stopped being an actor yeah and and it's not that he doesn't act in the marvel movies but i mean talk about a kind of uh talk about something you can play in your sleep right yeah but i think in this movie you are seeing also him before yeah. he sort of found his his golden his golden calf and just his line readings and his mm-hmm. alertness and his delight in playing scenes with different kinds of actors i find just contagious this is the kind of movie that you could actually say that we would never get within a mile of the Oscar nominations and yeah. sort of go like, this is what a great American screen performance looks like by, by Downey. He's magnetic and hilarious. Yeah. And I miss that. I think for me, his performance was what did save this for me. I'm, I've never been a huge Kilmer fan just because I find Kilmer on the wrong side of cold for me. Like I'm never able to attach to him. He's best for me when he's playing the Iceman and he's a villain and I can go, okay, I see what you are. Um, but this one was interesting to me because it really felt like he was, he recognized this as his comeback. This movie is his comeback that he would get mm-hmm. Tony Stark because of this movie. He was back in Hollywood Good Graces. It's also Shane Black's comeback because the last movie he did was... Um, the Long Kiss Goodbye, is that the one? Good the Long Kiss Goodnight, Good that's night. it. And that was 1996. And then that like totally bombed and he just kind of went into a form of reclusion, but he was throwing these yeah. enormous Hollywood parties where like all these people would meet and make new things and, and all that kind of thing. In fact, a lot of the scenes here are kind of based on those parties he would throw at his own home. Um, but this was his attempt at a comeback as well. And he was like, well, let's bring Robert Downey Jr. here. And then there's the scene where you actually have someone in a full robot suit go into uh, Michelle Monaghan's house and like it's a it's a star who stumbled in and he's uh, he's not having substance abuse issues, which is what happened 
happened to Robert Downey Jr. So it's interesting how many ways they're calling on this idea of a comeback and redemption, both in the real world and within the world of this film. Sources close to Neil, who has not worked as an actor in two years, say he seemed despondent earlier tonight during a rerun of Protocop. The actor, who still retains the costume he wore on the show, allegedly dressed up, stumbled down the bike path, and wandered into this Venice Beach house. It, yeah. you know, it's it's tailored, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, whatever the material for the novel was, and you know, the novel is broken into chapters that are all named for different Chandler novels, and the novel has certain you know turns of phrase and and, and plot points that are very much you know the essence of neo noir, the essence of postmodernism. You know, they're callbacks, but it's also again got a very contemporary sense of Hollywood. It's got a very mm -hmm. contemporary self reflexivity of 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 uh downy some of the reference points are, are very contemporary i love when they're at the party there's one bit where downy goes around comparing people at the party to other yeah uh, at one point i think he calls someone native american joe pesci yeah. which is yeah. which when you see the actor is sort of perfect i also like when mm -hmm. all the women come up and they're like what do you do and he tells them they're like okay i'm gonna go talk to someone else now <laughs> like you're not rich yeah. enough for me i'm like okay that's funny there, there are two parts to this movie, and it's, you know, the lowest art form is quoting movies on a podcast where people can't see it, but I'll do it anyway. There's <laughs> one point where someone asks Downey what he does, and he's very distracted, and he says, well, I got rich because I invented dice, which I am still <laughs> laughing at 15 years later. Yeah. And also someone's telling him something very important at one point, like a key piece of info, and the camera pans down, and he's just drawing a picture of a cat. You yes. this? And then yeah. he's labeling it gato, which is <laughs> in Spanish, which is never contextualized. Yeah. It has a bit of a cartoon non sequitur quality to it. And that's why it doesn't feel boring. Yeah. I remember seeing with a friend at the Cumberland in Toronto and just marveling on the way out of it. It's just like, well, whatever that was, it's not boring. Because you can't predict scene to scene or even line to line, like what the emphases are going to be. It's very zingy, you know? Yeah. It's also a very, like, uh, it's a very plotty noir. Like, you do have to kind of follow the threads of the mystery. And and I think it's worth saying, especially when, like, in the context of what you're saying with now, and I absolutely agree, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't really act anymore. It, this is the first time we saw Robert Downey Jr. really like this. Because I think, you know, before this was, like, Wonder Boys and Ally McBeal, where he's kind of reaching this he's level. He's, like, scampish, this, and this is, like, full-scale yeah. rogue. Yes. But I also think that this he ha he has chosen this to be his lane. So I think you'd be forgiven if you saw this movie and thought it was of a piece with some of his more modern stuff. But it, like this was the first time we saw this out of Robert Downey Jr., and it was completely electric at the time. Because when you when you're working in neo noir in the '90s or 2000s, you're under the you're under the shadow of so much stuff. I mean, it's it's down the road from Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit like Quentin Tarantino's Los Angeles, and you've got the Coens. But there's something about Black's particular form of just kind of like I don't know if you'd call it chutzpah, or if you'd call it arrogance, or if you'd call it refusal. But he's very uninterested in being correct. You know, he's very uninterested in being progressive. Yeah. It's it's a kind of bad boyness that in the right doses and with the right avatar, in this case, Downey, and I quite like Kilmer in it too. Mm -hmm. Um, it made people feel like it was a bit of a throwback, but like an actual throwback, because it has a bit of the fatalism, a bit of the sadness of those seventies sure. detective movies too, which carried over also into the the what was it called? The the nice guys with uh, with gosling and crow which i which i also think is okay i think i i i think i fall on preferring that one even though i do think that this one is maybe a better noir like a better mystery right. whereas that one is perhaps just a better comedy 
but um yeah i it's it's interesting and i do find that I, I, there's also I do think it's worth saying that I, that I know uh, Becky you said and it's true that uh, some of the the gay content hits your ear a little wrong these days but at the time I remember it being it's considered quite progressive just to have a gay character of that to size. be progressive in that and he actually cites yeah. Will and Grace as being which is true is being the thing that sort of kicked that open for the mainstream and he wanted to do the same thing as Will and Grace did but for action movies to have a character like this and be... you know it's it's like uh, like a sixties movie with a an african-american lead one of the good ones was good representation at the time and i think that yeah kilmer taking the role was it's still unfortunately at the time ballsy for val kilmer to play a gay man what's funny about perry is that he's quite not ideal yeah Mm -hmm. he's 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 sort of impulsive and annoying and he you know, he's not terribly supportive of the Downey character. I mean, they do the bickering, you know, buddies thing well. And for the most part, it's funny because up top they define him by being gay. I mean, it's literally how he's referred to by the other characters, but it doesn't really affect what he does within the plot. Mm-hmm. And there was one critic in Salon who pointed this out at the time. I think it's Charles Taylor. That when There's a scene in a hotel where Kilmer sees an orderly walk by, like a male orderly, and he just stops mm-hmm. for like about five seconds to look at the guy's ass and then move forward. And it's actually wonderful because it's yeah. not, it, it, it's there and it's funny and it's not called attention to or placed in italics. It doesn't even cut to a close up, and it's like very casual. And I think that you can argue whether or not, you know, the movie is having its stereotypes and eating them too, or if it really is sort of just trying to say, here's a, here's a gay character placed casually into a neo-noir movie and he's allowed to be funny on his own terms. I think the performance succeeds in the second yeah. category for, for me. I, I really yeah. I, I think that Kilmer definitely pulls it off. I think the, the, the issues sometimes are just that the movie uh, d- doesn't lose any chance to reiterate that homosexuality is a bit disgusting. Uh, you know, if, if there's a, f- force of a kiss or a crack it just kind of reminds me it, it always reminds me of another surprisingly progressive but not great movie from 1982 partners uh, yes. where ryan o'neill and john hurt are a gay cop straight cop uh and it's just again that movie you're like wow this is pretty progressive but you're also like Ooh, Ooh, there's some stuff in here co- uh, throughout yeah. yeah but i, I don't know it, it's still interesting and uh, you can still say i can't name another uh, noir where there's as explicitly a gay lead in it so, you know, I also enjoy how referential this film is within like like it's like the red apple cigarettes in Tarantino movies where not only do you have one of the characters say thrill me, which, of course, is a reference to Shane Black's buddies, Fred Decker's movie Night of the Creeps. Um, but like all the little things like I will survive is his his ringtone, just kind of filling you in that that's what's going to happen at the end. Like, yeah, I, I like those little in world things. And also it's set at Christmas, which is a very Shane Black thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it well, that, that's what I meant. Is it? It's 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 zingy and it's inhabited, and it's not what a lot of neo noirs are. Is it's not lazy. Yeah, you know, it doesn't lean on the tropes. Like the tropes lean back a little bit. You know, the tropes are spring loaded, or the tropes have, you know, a, a little bit of bounce back to them. I mean, no scene in the movie kind of just sits there. And there's certain scenes that, because Black is, as we said, better known as a writer, mm-hmm. but the way they're directed, like I'm thinking of the scene where Harry, the, the, the Danny character is under the bed and uh, another character gets killed. 
And that murder is right in line with the dehumanizing treatment of the female characters in the movie. That's the narrative. You know, you mm. could argue it's the subject of the critique, yeah. but it's also the shape of the narrative. There's a lot of a lot of female casualties. But you guys know the scene I mean where she kind of yeah. makes eye contact with him and then the eye contact sort of extends beyond her ability to see anything. You know, it's mm-hmm. like eye contact and then her eyes are wide shut, I guess. Yeah. You know, yeah. she says actually the same staging in a way as Cruz with the, the girl in the morgue and eyes wide shut. But I remember seeing that in the theater and finding it oddly moving and it's moving because mm-hmm. of the way that Downey plays it. There's like a real sense of kind of waste there in the same way that Monaghan refuses to play the character sort of in conventional or, or, or stereotyped ways as a kind of ingenue or, or a damsel in distress. She's pretty funny. And I've never thought, I don't think she's ever had a role since then. No, that's been it's... worthy of the kind of talent she has. She's such an engaging she's great in this. subject. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild because you. I, I do remember this being such a. Everyone was like, "Wow, she like obviously Downey gets a lot out of it, but she yeah. she got a real boost." And yeah, it kind of went to Gone Baby Gone and Mission Impossible, and that those kind of those threads never connected. And she's still yeah. It seems like you're waiting for the next version of this. And I also think you're absolutely right that this, especially in comparison to Brick, it's a, a lot more visually stylish as a film. I think. Uh, Black is trying to announce himself as a director as well. Like he, he's trying to show interesting. There's obviously a lot going on with color in this movie, with red and blue, and and just interesting shots. Whereas I think Johnson was trying very hard to deny connections to noir visually uh, in a way that that it's, it doesn't make the film flat or anything, but it's just less of a showpiece as a visual well, director. I mean, maybe to be reductive, we can sort of say that Brick is a a precious conceit that in order to sustain itself has to take itself pretty seriously mm. for two hours yeah. and kiss kiss bang bang takes very little seriously for more than 30 seconds at a time <laughs> Fair. but 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 does end up cumulatively at least for me having some kind of some kind of affect and a truly funny riff on the happy ending which we don't want to spoil mm. but the bit of like and everyone's there to be happy. Yes. And then he yes. starts adding people who aren't part of the movie's narrative <laughs> universe, which yeah. is almost like something out of Dirty Work or a Norm MacDonald movie, I think. Is, <laughs> is, 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 and that person's there, and that person's yeah. there. It's very And that's fun. someone who knows very the fun. rules enough to know how to break them, and then, but still yeah. not break it so much that you're out of that style, right? No. Yeah. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I want to get us into, because, like, the, I mean, the big difference is, is that Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson's movie was a half a million dollars, and this one is a $15 million movie, even though they were pushing to get a bigger name star for Gay, per- uh, Gay Perry. Um, they wanted Harrison Ford, which I cannot imagine, but uh, they wanted to get a bigger name star because then they could make it an $80 million movie. But this is not a movie that I feel like needs an $80 million budget. Like it feels like it's lean. The um, action sequences don't feel over the top or or unrealistic with like the cars flipping over. I can't imagine an $80 million version of this unless you're paying, you know, an extra $40 million to get Harrison Ford to play a gay man. No, 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 is not predicated on spectacle. No. You know, the real crack in Tarantino, who's not 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 a neo-noir filmmaker is that when you make movies that are 80 or 100 million dollars you're pretty divorced from the roots of what you were trying to resurrect (laughs) you know i I, the idea of a hundred million dollar exploitation movie is actually kind of obscene Mm -hmm. you know so i mean i can't think of too many neo-noirs that are predicated on needing that kind of scale and kiss kiss bang bang is much more expensive than brick but yeah i don't think of it as a 
blockbuster scale movie and that's kind of what's good about it it's such a self-contained story that the fate of the world is not at stake it's also a movie now that would be released on streaming it wouldn't have been released in theaters which i also think would have been a very different experience watching it especially that final scene where they're doing the direct direct address to camera yeah well i miss the days where where 10 things like this might open. <laughs> Wouldn't that be yeah. nice? In a year. And whether this is the first or second or third best of those, or even if you don't like it, it's the sort of thing that you might plausibly stumble upon in, in a theater, not even at a film festival. Totally. Yeah. Also a real word of mouth one. I think it was a real grower because it's. I think it, it's one that still shows up on lists of, because when we do research for this show and the TV yeah. show, you get the like, what's the overlooked film? And people still love to champion Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, even though I think it was a relative hit, it, it it did enough for its cast and crew, certainly. Well, it's maybe reminiscent of one of the last periods, not just where Downey was an actor, but if we want to talk about not just Downey and Marvel, but Marvel as a thing, it, it's when mm-hmm. uh, movies in some kind of mid-range existed. By mid-range, I don't mean benign or innocuous or middle-brow, but just mid-range of, of, of budget, you know, something between yeah. something tiny and something and, and something gargantuan. And I feel those are the ones that are now going directly to streaming that don't arrive with fanfare. So you really have to seek them out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even something like the nice guys, it feels like a long time ago (laughs) that that was playing in theaters. And then what did black do most recently, but he made an attempt to cash in the goodwill of these kind of enjoyably R rated comedies by trying to do a big franchise thing and trying to, you know, reclaim predator, not terribly successfully. Although it had some good Shane Blackie lines. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and a, a, some, a lead woman performance, which is always, again, you're like, okay, yeah. he's trying something. But yeah, I, I, I wonder when you talk about this middle that that might be the cure for, for Downey. I know an interesting thing with this film is this is also the first film where he's working with his now wife, Susan mm. Levin, which yeah. is credited with a lot of him being... A, a superstar she was somebody that realized his sobriety is connected to his working much like eric roberts's wife slash producer and they kind of work together with these projects but i yeah i wonder if he needs to do the Shyamalan uh sell your house and fund a project sort of i thought you were going to say i wonder if he should do a Shyamalan movie and i thought that would be <laughs> i mean yeah also yes because, i'm not because against can it you, because can you think of an actor whose inherent wittiness might not mitigate the odd stiltedness of I, mean, I like Shamlin a lot and i like sure, it, yeah. but i'm like boy would that be funny because I mean, it's not because <laughs> actors like mel gibson and joaquin phoenix are not sure. exactly like uh, you know they're not funny enough to offset m night yeah downey in an m night movie is funny but that's one of the reasons we love him so much i mean it's, it's him <laughs> and james spader when i think of like these unlikable but utterly lovable scamps you know what I mean? And it's sure. I'm a, I'm, would be very surprised to find out if they weren't. And, and Kiefer, I think, is on that list as well. But, like, it's a, a characterization that you you saw a lot in the 80s and 90s that we don't have a lot of those people now in that same kind of, yeah. like, scampy bad boy but still safe, but behind the scenes they're really not okay. <laughs> like, it's, it's interesting to yeah. me. So does that mean that your two favorite films of all time are Less Than Zero and Age of Ultron? They just yeah. might those be. Are, those are... Those are, those are <laughs> Those are our two Downey Spader 
or tete a tete kind of. I will watch just about anything with any one of those three human beings. It is dictated a lot of my life. I hope James Spader made so much money off that movie. I I, I hope he's. I hope he's living large. Spader seems like he might secretly just have a Scrooge McDuck fall based on some of his projects. I don't know. Blacklist was on for like nine years. What a what a what a great actor sometimes. (laughs) But again, right project when he wants to do it, he does it, and he's fantastic in it. Right. Oh no, I I have I have the biggest soft spot for Spader, and like you, for that late '80s class of up and coming kind of you know sleazy, beautiful <laughs> leading man. I just love that they did a Bretty Stanellis movie together, and then a a, a Joss Whedon uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Marvel movie. And now, actually, who would have thought that Bretty Stanellis would be the more palatable? <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is where I go ahead and write my reunion. This is going to be the nostalgia movie I write that's going to launch me. It's sure. going to feature those three as like roommates that need to come back to a frat house. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> All right, on that note, (laughs) I will make so much money on that, and so will they, uh, which is why they'll do it. And on that note, I'm going to take us out of here. Uh, Adam Naiman, thank you so much once again for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Oh, it was was my pleasure. Thank you for giving me an excuse to think about and remember, you know, back when going to see movies was uh, a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And can you uh, tell people how they can hear more of your readings and your writings and all sorts of stuff? Not that you'd ever want to, but uh, I'm, I'm occasionally on the on the Ringer's Big Picture podcast. I, I write pretty regularly uh, for for them. You know, I'm a contributing editor, of Cinemascope, and if you're interested in uh, pictorial but you know detailed analytical tourist criticism, I have three books out from Abrams in the last few years: one on the Coen Brothers, one on uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, and one on Zod- uh, on David Fincher, including some very effusive praise. For Downey's work in uh, in in Zodiac, I think he's the one part of Zodiac I like. I'm not a big Zodiac fan, but I do oh, like boy. him. <laughs> we can still you be gotta, friends. You got you, 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 you got you got to have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. You and Becky would fight over Fincher. I, think. <laughs> I like the ones he doesn't like. We have come to that conclusion. Yeah. Cam Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. And I will say that if you want to uh, follow the love affair of Robert Downey Jr. and Susan Levin, just check out Gothica when she used to work for Dark Castle Entertainment and produced him and Halle Berry in the classic Asylum horror film. (laughs) All right. And you can join us next week for some classic romance. We're going to be looking at a couple of books turned into movies, including 2005's Pride and Prejudice, one of the many versions of that, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we're going to be joined by the fantastic Eastern You. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Adam Naiman as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient 
which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.